0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonah Larkin, and we're going to talk about how he helps high-end individuals with performance, facilitates group performance, and is a habit expert. Before we begin, I'll remind you this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, or content creator, but your content's not quite delivering, head over to nightly.productions and find out how we can help you create that tactical content that will deliver. Jonah, welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Thanks, Zach. It's really great to be here. I appreciate it.
0: And I am super excited to talk about leadership with you and really focusing on coaching. And, and I know a big piece of what you talk about is self-mastery. And we love talking about self-mastery on the show. And before we dive into that, I want to give the audience an, an opportunity to learn a little bit about you, where in 2005, you sold a company where you found, after selling your company, you found yourself completely burned out physically, mentally, and spiritually. And then you went along a 10-year adventure of self-discovery. I love that you say it's an adventure, which dictates a journey of fun, right? You really started discovering things where you traveled, you dove deep into meditation, multiple month-long retreats, sitting for 10 plus hours a day of meditation. Wow, that's very monk of you where I don't know that I could sit still for 10 hours. So it's impressive you have that level of self-mastery. And you've really taken that into helping founders, executives, and those in professions create higher levels of self-mastery. I absolutely love that. Before we dive into and unpack all of that, what's a fun fact we may not know about you?
1: Well, let's see. A fun fact is that I had a realization about three weeks ago. So I'm a surfer. I love to do it as much as I possibly can. I live on the central coast of California. And I always kind of felt a little bit guilty about going surfing in the morning because it takes so long and having it delay the time that I get to work. And I finally got to the point where I realized that surfing is the most important thing I do all day. And I got there because I realized, you know, it really it's the one thing that puts me in a state where I can show up and as my best. And not only that is I'm starting the day in the water, in nature, and I just get to connect. I get to connect with myself and I get to connect with the world at large. And, you know, so that's kind of a, a point that I eased off myself a little bit and just said, dude, you know, you love this. It's really important to you, Accept that it is that important to you and let yourself do it. And so that's my fun fact for the day.
0: I love that. And I'm going to have to call out another fun fact that we might not touch on this which is why I want to call it out you're a licensed acupuncturist and you actually have a degree a master's degree in chinese medicine from the american college of traditional chinese medicine over in san fran where you really you have certification in functional medicine a lot of what you're talking about has goes into the meditation, right? You're very big on meditating, biohacking, kind of unpack before we really dive into obviously the business stuff. Like that's fascinating to me, right? I don't think I've had somebody, in, I definitely don't even know anybody in the traditional Chinese medicine realm. So kind of explain what that looks like a little bit for us.
1: Yeah. So I got into Chinese medicine, like you said, after I sold my company in uh, 2005 and I, I went on an adventure, I was in China, I got inspired by acupuncture. And I had had it before, and it was really effective to me when I was for me when I was an athlete. But the beauty of Chinese medicine is that it is the study of how the world works and man's place in the world. So when we start to talk about meditation or trying to understand who we are, where we are, when we start to talk about leadership, Chinese medicine, zooms way out from a 30,000 foot view and seeks to understand, okay, where does man exist? What influence does man have? And what are the influences and effects on man? And so you can look at nature. It really draws from nature for all the lessons that you can apply to your daily life. And the reason why I love that so much is because it's all encompassing. And as we both know, People are starting to look at things much more holistically now. So, you know, one of my favorite books is uh, Principles by Ray Dalio, the legendary hedge fund manager. And that's one not of a his book, principles.
0: that's an encyclopedia, and it's huge. I know. If y'all haven't. Don't tell me you just reach it over. That's like holding your desk down over there, man. That's like a huge book. (laughs) Yeah, it is.
1: I know. I pick it up and like look through it every once in a while. And I just, I'm like, wow, this guy's thinking is freaking genius. But even he says, one of his principles is if you want to understand something, look to nature. And so Chinese medicine really encompasses that. And it goes so deep. I mean, we could, you and I could spend hours talking about it, but... It really created a a deep level of base understanding for me of what I already knew in terms of my own experience, but then adding that additional layer, the Chinese medical knowledge on top of what I already knew, opened things up for me in new ways.
0: I love that because that's such a different, like you said, adventure. It's a different adventure that you've been on than a lot of people, especially in the leadership realm. And I'm really impressed because it it then has led into you have a position at Stanford University Graduate School of Business as a facilitator for interpersonal dynamics. Which, even, which I'm assuming is part of that self mastery journey that you've been talking about and you help people go through. What's interpersonal dynamics? It's like a a different terminology attached to it, I've not heard before.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Interpersonal dynamics is essentially how to create influence by building trust. So, you know, a lot of people, when they think of influence, they think of it as top down influence, like, oh, I'm an influencer. So I just like tell people what to do or, You know, you follow me on social media or I have a book, and so I'm influential, but true influence is a two way street. So if you and I become friends and I call you because I'm having some sort of issue, and you give me really good feedback or advice, you are influencing me. And so the more trust that you and I have together, the more influential we become to each other. And when we're talking about leadership, the best leaders are the most influential leaders but not through coercion. The best leaders create influence by building trust, right? I mean, you commanded men on the battlefield. So you know exactly what I'm talking about in terms of the ability to have people feel understood and for you to understand them and for them to understand you. And so essentially what interpersonal dynamics is, we practice how that actually works on the ground level.
0: It's really interesting. I'm sitting here, I'm I'm like flipping through all your content in the background. And a lot of it really builds into the way I'm looking at it. And what I'm getting out of it is intentionality. Really a lot of what you focus on in the morning is starting, feeling energized, excited, focused, having that intention. You have the quick start morning routine or morning rhythm challenge, excuse me. Mm -hmm. But you you talk about setting your day with intention by surfing. And really focusing on that and really shifting that. And I think that's such a key part of that self-mastery conversation. For me, it's the gym every morning. Like, I don't care how hard I am. If I'm walking on a treadmill instead of running, I'm going to the gym every morning because it's like my wusa time, right, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I love that aspect. When you look at having given yourself the grace to go surfing in the morning or going to the gym or whatever that may be, I see that as a big characteristic of leaders from influence to having grace for yourself and others what would you say would be a characteristic that you're like, yes, great leaders beyond being influential have this capability among leading people and themselves?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the best leaders are able to step into conflict in a creative and productive way. So let's take an example of having a difficult conversation. Maybe that's a difficult conversation with your partner. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe it's, with, with a parent, maybe it's a direct report, the ability to step into conflict and say, Hey, you know, when this, and this is called the situation behavior impact model of communication. So it's basically goes like this. This was the situation. This was the behavior that I saw, and this was the impact on me. So it could be like, Hey, Tom, you know, when you came into that, we were having that board meeting and you walked into that meeting and I said that I wanted to give the PowerPoint presentation. And you turned around and told everybody, hey, that's not important right now. And the impact of that statement on me was that I felt small and I felt like I wasn't important. And you were the one who had asked me to bring the PowerPoint presentation. And so, I'm honestly feeling small and I'm feeling angry. How does it feel to hear that feedback from me, right? So I'm stepping into conflict. I'm being vulnerable, but I'm also letting Tom know exactly where I am, okay? And And so that's what I see the best leaders do is they're able to step into conflict like that in a non-confrontational way, but very directly and very powerfully. And
0: I think that's huge in framing that, especially because as human beings, we're emotional creatures, right? Especially when we feel wronged or we feel, when you talk about stepping a conflict, that is a very conflicting state that you're in or could be depending on their boss, right? If they're not receptive to that type of pushback or feedback. And a lot of that kind of breaks into the masculine archetypes that you have highlighted where you have the king, the warrior, the magician, the lover as your archetypes that I've seen. Can you break that down and kind of intermingle what we what you just talked about, stepping in conflict and how each of those archetypes really present themselves?
1: Absolutely. So those archetypes, like you said, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover are based on the work of uh, psychologist Carl Jung, one of the fathers of modern psychology. And essentially, so what psychologists have done since Jung is they've taken Jung's original archetypes and they've expanded it a little bit. And so for men, we have king, warrior, magician, and lover. And let's just talk about the warrior archetype to make it simple. Basically, there's a journey that we all go on from boyhood into manhood. And what happens a lot of times is because we don't have a really good rites of initiation anymore for many young men, we go and we grow up and we act like boys, even though we're men, right? I mean, hey, still happens to me.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: It happens to all of us. So basically what that is, is we're not actually stepping into the fullness of the archetype. So for instance, in that situation, say I'm working with someone and they say something to me that I feel like is belittling, one thing I could do is I could go and I could try to undermine them. I could get into an argument with them. I could be passive aggressive or I could be overly aggressive. And essentially what that is, is if we're talking about the warrior archetype, If I am overly aggressive with them, that would be basically being a sadist. If I back off and I I avoid the conflict, that would be being a masochist, right? So both of those are not the correct or full response that we would ordinarily want. And so... You can look at the archetypes, the warrior or the king or anything, and there's a developmental journey from boyhood to manhood. And what is the warrior in his fullness? Well, the warrior in his fullness is somebody who stands up for what they believe, who defends what is valuable to them, who knows what their values are and is able to stand up for their values, but doesn't go and try to dominate over other people. And so if we get caught in that domination game, which many of us do all the time, we know that we're actually not stepping into our mature warrior archetype. And so you can look at that with the king archetype, which is basically the wisdom archetype, uh, the magician archetype, which is all about transformation, learning, and growth. And then the lover archetype, which is basically about receptivity, being open, um, going with the flow. That sort of thing. And so you can look at all of those archetypes and you can see when you look at the archetypical model where it is that you're stuck. And we all get stuck along those archetypes at different times and in different places. But essentially, it's a framework or mental model that we can use to see where we're thriving and where where we might need some help.
0: And I, I love a piece of that that you break down on one of your articles on your website where you're talking about. There's no real true rite of passage in modern culture. And it's interesting. I went to a men's retreat. I spoke at a men's retreat a few weeks ago in Orlando, and it was. I love the dynamic not to be sexist about anything, but the dynamic of men around men are able to communicate in a way that when a female is present, it shifts the dynamics. So it was the first time I had been doing all men's retreat when is a speaker, but also when you're speaking at them, you, you also participate, right? You're also there to support. And there's about 40 of us there. And One of the conversation points that came up was how do you define what being a man is these days? Because it's lost in society. My dad is from, he's a Vietnam vet. So he's an older man. He taught me what being a man is in a culture where some generation, some guys, my generation don't understand, open a door for a lady, right? Walk on the street side, like small stuff like that, that to me make up being a man. But what we found is like, there's no rite of passage, in our culture, that shifts you into, all right, this is what manhood looks like. Can you talk to us a little bit about where that comes from, where that presents itself, how maybe we can almost create our own rite of passage, stepping into manhood and more of these archetype fashions, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, first of all, I just want to go back to what you said, Zach, and I totally relate to stepping into a men's retreat and being like, holy crap, wow, I didn't know that this level of communication, this level of vulnerability was possible among men until I went to a men's retreat. But I think what you're talking about, at least for me, I'll share a personal experience. I was always in, not always insecure, but I tended to be insecure around alpha males. And the way I dealt with it was to excel in my athletic career. So I played baseball, I played soccer, I skied, and it was always to be at the top level and be the best, and that was the way that I w- could uh, make myself feel comfortable. I could dominate, and that was really my calling card. But in other situations, when I'd walk in and there'd be a bunch of alpha males like hanging out doing whatever, I would feel very uncomfortable, and I didn't understand why. I didn't understand why I didn't feel comfortable, and the reason was is because I didn't actually feel comfortable as a man, and I didn't know how to show up as a masculine man, but with the sensitivity that I have, because I'm a very, very sensitive person. That's why I'm good at what I do. That's why I'm a good coach. And in terms of the rite of passage, if you look at traditional societies, they all have specific points in time where the boy becomes the man. And it always would engage some type of ritual suffering there always be some sort of ritual suffering. There's a great movie from the 80s called The Emerald Forest. You can actually find it on YouTube. And it's about this white boy who gets lost and gets adopted by this Amazonian tribe. And they do an incredible, there's an incredible scene where they go through the rite of passage and he gets, they put like fire ants on him and, and after that he's a man. And so there's a very clear delineation of boyhood to manhood and it's very clear that a man has very different expectations than a boy. And the primary expectation is that the man is there to protect the tribe. And that is the thing that we miss. And we have it, you know, if you're on an athletic team, you kind of have like a little bit of a rite of passage. If you're in the military, I imagine, I mean, that's a rite of passage, but it's not a conscious rite of passage. It's not like, hey, this is a rite of passage. It's just like you go through the fire together and you feel connected. There isn't this, hey, you're going through this rite of passage and your job as a man is to show up in your power and protect the things in this society and culture that are valuable to you and the people that cannot protect themselves. It's a very different mentality than trying to dominate over other people, which is what we call, in archetypal terms, we call that the shadow warrior.
0: I love that because that's something literally the conversation we had was about how do you dictate when you become a man? And everybody in that room had a totally different conversation about it. And just talking about my background in the military, you know, for a lot of 18, 19 year olds, and I joined the military at 28. So I'd already had a professional career. I was already old, if you will. But these 17, 18, 19 year olds going through basic training was almost that rite of passage into, hey, mama's not here to wipe your butt anymore. And you're about to get yelled at and you're about to get yelled at a lot. And it was a shock to the system for a lot of people. And when I think of rite mm-hmm. of the passage, I always think about the Roman empire and the way they did their warrior. I'm very big in, in that culture. I, I love that aspect of things where they send their young men out into the wilderness and they do this rite of passage, have to come back showing that they are now a man in so many different capacities. And I wish there was something to kind of shift that into our culture where I feel like a lot of the generations we have now from my millennial generation to younger, I love the saying, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And another is, you know, soft men create hard times, hard times create strong men, strong men create soft times. And it's that cycle, right? Where do you see that as you're coaching people through this self mastery for them to flip that switch which is a huge switch to flip into that more protective mindset, into that more manly, quote unquote, mindset. And I don't mean manly in the alpha mindset, because I think the sensitivity piece is like the, one of the hugest pieces of vulnerability, which is one of the greatest capacities of a leader. How do you help people flip that switch into this is what manhood should look like?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would kind of, you know, use myself an example and then ask you a question too. So for me, Like, I had very specific mental models of how manhood was supposed to look. I looked at my dad. My dad was a pretty macho guy. Like, I thought, oh, this is what a man is supposed to look like. Well, little did I know that my dad is, he's not trans, but he's, at this point, he's almost trans. He, like, plays in that world. And so I had Like this vision of him as a man, but underlying it, there was this whole other thing going on. So I got very mixed messages. And so I didn't know what a man was supposed to be. And that was my mental model of manliness. And I looked out and I admired football players and, oh, that's what a man is, to play football. And so the way that I help people is I just try to understand what is your mental model of manhood? Where did you get your mental model? So it sounds I mean, it sounds like your father was a military man.
0: He was. Yes.
1: Yeah. But you didn't join the military until later.
0: And no. And what's interesting about this dynamic for me personally is my biological father left my mom when she was pregnant with me. And the father I know that I call my dad remarried my mom when I was like three or four years old was well out of, I mean, my mom's 53, he's 73. So he was well out of the military and he was a Navy guy. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't even really that tough, right? Navy guys. (laughs) But it it was more the intrinsic values he brought. Obviously he had that. I mean, that generation just has, I'm never sitting down. I'm always working. I always have this discipline. I always Mm -hmm. have this grind. I am the provider. So my mental model was really just watching and observing how he treated my mother in a capacity that as I was growing up, it's like, That's how a man should treat a woman. Right. Mm -hmm. And I strive to that And our last name, a knight is his last name. I took it as a teenager. I take that name very seriously. That name is on my businesses. That name is my, my bond. That name is my father's name. Like I have that mindset of legacy. Like I'm not going to mess up his name. And so to me, it's almost a level of like honor, right? I have to be honorable in my actions to not invalidate my father's legacy. If that makes sense. So I take that very seriously, but I think that's kind of a unique mindset. I haven't really seen my generation thinking in those terms.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful mental model that you have and that you've adopted and that, you know was imprinted on you. And, and I think you're lucky to have that because it sounds to me like it gives you a great amount of strength and groundedness and who you are and what you stand for. Many men don't have that. But even the ones, the fact is, is that no matter what your mental model of manhood is, no matter how good it is, there's always a downside to it. And like our greatest strengths are our, also our biggest weaknesses. And so when we start to look at, at, at mental models, there's always some sort of downside. So one of my mental models of manhood is that I'm supposed to be good at everything. And the fact is, I'm not. I'm really good at about three things. I'm great at three things, like absolutely world-class, great communicator, really good coach, highly intuitive. But man, like getting stuff, the little stuff done in my business, I am horrible at. And it took me so long to be like, you know what, Jonah, you need some freaking help. And so I hired the smartest person that I could find and she's way, way, way better than me at most everything except for those three things. And that was really hard for me to admit that I'm mostly incompetent at many of those administrative type of stuff, like making sure my calendar's arranged properly. Like That's not how I operate, but she helps me operate in a more organized way. And it took me looking at my mental model like I'm supposed to be good at everything to realize that that was affecting me in a negative way.
0: I love that you put it in those terms because I 100% correlate with that, especially in the entrepreneurship world where in a high level operative, I mean, the infantry and I went overseas with special forces like you talked about top of the top in the army world. And that mindset becomes, we are the best at what we do. You have that, you almost have to have that arrogance. Like when you step into the ring, like you're going to to win that fight. There's, you can't have that seat of doubt, but when that translates, like you're talking about, it translates into, I'm great at everything. And it's really hard to take that step back to look at realistically, I'm not that good at certain things. Like for me, I love operations. I love structuring things. I love branding. I hate selling. And I hate marketing. Mm. Those two things and branding and marketing are very different. Selling and marketing are very different. Those are the areas where I will do it, but it'll be begrudging if I have to do it, even though to a capacity as business owners, as high-end executives, we have to do that. But to your point, like it took a little while for me to realize, like my ego had to step aside. I think that's what it all draws back to as a man. My ego had to get out of the freaking way to say, yeah, I'm not good at that. Please help me. And asking for help. Or hiring somebody for help, it's very similar, is one of the most difficult things for a lot of men to realize, but it could be like the answer and the solution, right? A hundred percent,
1: because as men, we derive our value from competence and feeling like we're being useful, right? And that's why when men don't have jobs, they get depressed and suicidal. We need to have things to do and we need to have things, we need to feel like we're contributing to something in a powerful way. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times that same mindset gets in front of us asking and receiving help. And the fact is that nobody, whether you're Elon Musk or anybody who built a business, you don't do it alone. You do it with other people, whether you're part of a team, whether you're part of a company. And there's a thing going around. It's like, hey, hire people smarter than yourself. And I could not agree with that more. Like work with people smarter than yourself. And that's really hard to do. It's hard to admit that there's somebody who's better than me at coaching. It's it's like hard for me to admit that. I don't want to admit that. I want to think that I'm absolutely the best, but you know what? It's absolutely true. And so that's why I work with coaches all the time. I've got a regular coach. I have a, a therapist. I have a financial coach. You know, I have three coaches right now who I'm working with and all of them teach me stuff. And so I think that, you know, really getting and asking for help is extremely powerful feedback, asking for feedback and asking for help. If you can do that, man, sky's the limit.
0: And I love that you brought up therapy because that is one of the, especially in the veteran and the police world, that is one of the hardest things because it gets almost dictated that if you're in therapy, you're weak you're broken, like you're unusable anymore. You, there's something wrong with you, right? And one of the biggest aspects I had to shift is like therapy was is not even was is phenomenal. And a lot of people don't correlate it as a coach. But for me, that's like my life coach is my therapist because I need mm-hmm. a unbiased third opinion or unbiased third party to give me an opinion of like what am I doing wrong in life or why am I holding on to this guilt from Afghanistan? Why am I holding on to all this that it turns into sabotaging yourself. And when you talk about coaches and somebody like yourself, that is a high-end coach, I have a business coach, I have a therapist, I have yada, 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 right? And I have all these coaches because all the greats in time from Michael Jordan to Tiger Woods have coaches. Everybody in life needs a coach, right? And I think for me, what it turned into is I heard Steve Jobs once said, He is never, he makes it a point to never be the smartest man in the room. He hired the smartest man, which made him the quote unquote smartest man, right? So he surrounded himself with people that were even smarter than him. I'm like, not only is that brilliant, that is strategic because then you're recruiting these top end people. And yes, it helps you look better and helps you perform better because it all like like the osmosis effect, right? You start gaining this from all these people and surrounding them. And um, I love that you really kind of brought all that into like coaching is so key. What other resources have you used? Books, podcasts, I know meditation is a big piece, journaling. What's a resource you'd recommend to the audience that if they're not doing, you think would just be an amazing place to start? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: So this, I don't know if this is necessarily the best place uh, to, actually, I do think it's a good place to start, but it might be a little difficult for people. And I think that is to get involved with a group of people who are doing something that you respect or want to do. And the reason why I say this is this goes back to habits you know like like you brought up in the beginning you and i are both all about habits you get up in the morning and you go to the gym and that like sets the tone for the day i wake up i drink my water i meditate i go surfing that sets my tone for the day and essentially when we're around other people who are doing good things we're going to do good things too and so i think the really untapped resource for people is community. And especially in today's day and age, post-COVID world, you and I are talking to each other on Zoom. I'm sure you're talking to your clients on Zoom. We're, you know, all over the place, but what we actually miss is getting together with other people in community. And because we're humans, we're animals, I think that is absolutely one of the most powerful things that we can do. And I know that, you know, I run men's masterminds and in those masterminds, the work that one man does helps all of the other people in there because I can see part of me in your work. And maybe you're having a challenge with selling. Maybe I'm having a challenge with selling, right? Or maybe I'm having it. maybe you're having a challenge with selling, but I'm having a challenge with selling my partner on something, right? So it's like, There's always that work that can be done. So whether it's learning a new instrument, whether it's getting in shape, whether it's getting your business together, or maybe you're recovering from an addiction, group work is one of the most powerful things that I've ever seen. And the reason why is because it happens a lot faster than a lot of times than one-to-one work. So that would be my big recommendation for people is find a community of people who you want to hang out with.
0: I love that. I know you run masterminds. I've talked on this show before. I have a couple of masterminds, one that's actually focused here in Atlanta at one specific location. Um, and it's a, a business group. And it's funny, post-COVID, this was like the first business group that this location had. And it's crazy to see how much that interactivity with a group and like-minded individuals, that CEO roundtable mastermind effect can have on people. So the fact that you were doing that same space, man, I think it's incredible because it's truly that value cannot be understated. And I love that you're bringing that into the world. And I'm truly curious, Juna, as you're doing all these things, as you're putting this self-mastery work out there, as you're helping all these people, what is the legacy you're wanting to leave on the world with all the amazing things you're accomplishing?
1: You know, the legacy, I used to want to be like the star. You know, I used to want to be the person who like everybody remembered. But the legacy that I want to leave now is that the people who, I want to help the people who get remembered that's what it is for me because it puts me in a very in a much more humble place and i honestly feel a lot more powerful than that so you know hopefully i'm leaving you know every relationship i have in a way where both of us feel like we both got something out of that deal and i think if when i die when i'm on, when i'm on my deathbed and i feel like i've played full out i haven't held anything back i've had a lot of fun and I've made an impact with people who are trying to make an impact, then I've been massively, massively successful. And a lot of that comes down to relationships. I don't want to leave any, I don't want to leave any relationship undone. And what I mean by that is I don't want anything left unsaid. If you and I are are friends and we have a conflict, I want to address that conflict. I want to get it done. I want to let it go so that I can move on. And so, That I think is really what my legacy—I wish my legacy to be—is that left nothing on the
0: table and helped out those people who are trying to make an impact. I love that, Jonah. That's powerful, and you're obviously already very well on your way of accomplishing that legacy and leaving that. And I want to give the audience opportunity to not only connect with you, find the content you're putting out there. Where can they find? the workshops, the masterminds you're doing. I know you have a habit mastery cheat sheet out there. Give us all the scoop on where to find this amazing content you have for us.
1: Yep. Yeah. You can go to my website. It's just jonah and I've set up a page for your podcast listeners and you can just go and, and download all those resources that I have. It's just jonah slash battle B-A-T-L. And there's all those links on there. I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn. Don't do much on Twitter, and yeah, I mean, hey, give me a follow on social media. It's a great way to connect. But honestly, I'm a, a big fan of connecting in person with my network. I think that's a hugely overlooked area. But yeah, people can find me jonalarkin.com, Instagram, Jonah Larkin, Twitter, Jonah Larkin, LinkedIn, Jonah Larkin. All those places if you want to reach out
0: to me. That's where I am. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the tactical leadership podcast. And I hope you got a ton of value out of what we talked about today. I also want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Night Protection Services. If you're a leader in a small to mid-sized business that does five to $10 million a year in revenue and want to improve retention costs, which could actually add up to being twice your employee's salary all through creating a safer work environment and saving up to 25% insurance costs. Be sure to visit nightprotectionllc.com.